is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester's community-powered news radio show for Friday, July 23rd. Coming up... Rochester ranks in the top 50 worst cities for urban heat. We'll find out what city officials have been doing to address the issue. Then, the mainstream media is fawning over space billionaires. But who pays the price for these flights of fancy? Plus, Rochester's Broadway comes back to life in the upcoming performance of Monologues on Clarissa Street. And we talk with the founder of Rock the Peace to find out how this year's event hopes to bring healing and community to those who've lost loved ones to violence. All that and more on this week's edition of Reclaiming the Narrative. For Friday, July 23rd, it's time for In Case You Missed It, this week's local news in brief. Rochester Mayor Lovely Warren pleaded not guilty Wednesday to weapons and child endangerment charges. The charges followed a search of Warren's home back in May as part of an investigation into her estranged husband's alleged involvement with drug trafficking. Prosecutors say Warren and her husband were in possession of an illegal firearm and that they failed to properly secure a second firearm from their 10-year-old daughter. Warren's attorney said Wednesday that both guns were properly registered. The University of Rochester's Board of Trustees has passed a resolution halting all new investments in fossil fuels. Campus activists held the news this week, noting that the resolution is the result of years of lobbying. It's unclear how much of the university's existing investment portfolio is tied up directly or indirectly in the fossil fuel industry. City News is reporting this week that disgraced attorney Tim Curtin is still receiving a salary from the city of Rochester, even after resigning his post as Rochester's top lawyer last month. Curtin had faced intense pressure to resign after an independent investigation found he acted to block video of Daniel Prude's death from public view. Earlier this year, Rochester City Council even passed a resolution calling on Mayor Warren to fire Curtin for what they characterized as a pattern of, quote, obstructionist behavior. But according to a city spokesperson this week, Mayor Warren has asked Curtin to remain on staff to assist with long-term projects. Curtin will continue to receive a taxpayer-funded salary of about $150,000 a year until the end of Mayor Warren's term in January of 2022. The Rochester City School Board voted Thursday to rename number three school in honor of the district's first black principal, Dr. Alice Young. The school is currently named after Nathaniel Rochester, a slaver and Rochester's founder. Alice Young became the principal of number 19 school on Meg Street in 1962. When she was first hired 10 years earlier, she was one of just a handful of black educators in the entire district. Young supervised the district's first integration initiatives, including the Urban Suburban Program. Rochester City School District Superintendent Leslie Meyer Small cited Young as an inspiration, saying she is, quote, full of such wisdom. Young is currently 97 years old and resides in Penfield. And finally, Brighton's planning board voted Wednesday to approve construction of a new planned parenthood facility. 
The decision came after a public hearing where dozens of people spoke both for and against the clinic. The Brighton facility will occupy a building that has yet to be constructed on South Clinton Avenue. And those are some of this week's local headlines. This is Reclaiming the Narrative, Rochester's community-powered news radio show, produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast on WAYO 104.3. I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. Now on to our top stories. Climate Central recently released a report that found Rochester is in the top 50 U.S. cities for urban heat. Our reporter, Laura Smith, sat down with the City of Rochester's Energy and Sustainability Manager, Shalini Beath, to discuss the city's plans to mitigate urban heat. What is the city doing to tackle the urban heat problem? The city developed... Um, a climate vulnerability assessment uh, followed by a climate change resilience plan. Um, and then this was published in 2019. And really this was to help us prepare for and respond to the impacts of climate change, um, including um, extreme heat and heat waves. This plan really recommends strategies that our community as a whole can collaboratively implement um, in order to build uh, resilience throughout Rochester. And the plan actually looked at kind of three subject areas. We looked at natural resources, socioeconomic resources, so our community, our people in the city, um, as well as infrastructure, built environment. And what we did was we, we looked at how um, vulnerable, so how sensitive these, these assets are to climate change impacts, including extreme heat, and how adaptive they are. So what's their ability or their capacity to bounce back from these impacts? Um, and we definitely took into consideration the issues of equity, accessibility, and public health. Um, and as part of this this um, plan, we looked at climate projections as well. So how, you know, what is climate change going to look like in Rochester over the next decades, next 50 years? Given all of these climate change impacts that are coming our way, many of which we're already experiencing, um, we have already have a plan with strategies that we, we can implement to reduce these impacts or to, to prepare for these impacts. So looking at at, at heat, which is just one of these climate change impacts, um, we are going to be developing a heat emergency plan for the for the entire community. Um, and we received uh, recently received some funding in order to develop this heat emergency plan. Um, and you know, as part of this plan, we'll be looking at uh, vulnerable populations as well. Um, and you know, we're going to be working collaboratively with various stakeholders who are involved in, in heat emergency response. We want to look at mapping um, the city to look at where, where might we best target these heat emergency response systems specifically to um, include vulnerable populations. How can we best communicate how to respond in, an, in a situation where you have a heat wave or extreme heat event. Um, how can we develop our outreach materials so that all our citizens can access them and understand them? And also, how can we best distribute resources that people need in a heat emergency? So that plan is really um, 
kind of a, a next step that we're taking um, in order to address extreme heat in our city. And there's there's a number of other strategies um, that are included in this climate change resilience plan, which, you know, is is planting more trees, so in- increasing our tree canopy so we can have more shade, um, doing a tree canopy assessment. So basically going out and mapping um, the entire city to say, where are the trees, um, you know, and, and where are their gaps? And f- using our resources to target filling in those gaps. There's also definitely strategies recommended to increase connectivity of green spaces, so an increase more parklands, because all of these elements are helpful in terms of reducing the urban heat island impact. So just reducing concrete built environment and instead increasing green spaces, porous pavement, shade, um, providing trees, and so on. So going back to that tree canopy assessment, one of the things noted in the Climate Central report was the relationship between areas that have a lot of trees and those that don't is heavily tied to the history of deliberately racist policies, including redlining, which have obviously had an impact on the makeup of Rochester. How do you go about planting trees in those areas that might not have obvious spaces for them? The first step that we take is to, um, you know, engage the public in this process. So um, anytime we undertake a project, we definitely do public outreach. We inform the public about why we're looking to do this um, and certainly would be happy to get their feedback on it. So there's definitely a public engagement piece of all of this. Um, But certainly going out and just mapping where there are no trees is is our first step. Um, And I will say the the tree planting initiative is is going to be something collaborative. So it has to involve um, the planning division. It has to involve the street de- design division. It has to involve forestry. Um, you know, and then we have to we have to secure funding for the planting. So it's it's kind of a long term uh, and multi part um, project. But absolutely, I mean, I I understand that that certainly is an issue. And it's as part of building climate resilience, we also want to make sure that we put trees in areas where trees have been historically lacking. Um, And again, I want to raise the point that there's also, you know, in other cities, we've seen this, and we'll probably see this in our city as well. A lot of um, this will overlap with, um, you know, a higher numbers of vulnerable populations in these areas. So maybe low-income individuals, individuals with higher rates of respiratory illnesses like asthma, and then, um, you know, other vulnerable populations. So planting trees is is definitely um, beneficial. It brings a lot of health benefits as well. Um, and in addition to building climate resilience. So it's kind of Uh, uh, impactful in both ways. Shalini Beath, Energy and Sustainability Manager for the City of Rochester, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much.
Over the past two weeks, the private space companies of two of the world's wealthiest men celebrated successful launches. But not everyone is celebrating, with some calling for higher taxes on the wealthiest to fund social services for everyone. Our reporter Jason Taylor has more in this week's Inequality Index. There's a moment in Summer of Soul, Questlove's recently released documentary about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, when a festival attendee is asked for their opinion on humankind's first lunar landing. The attendee replies, people in Harlem aren't focusing on the moon, they're dealing with everyday realities. The same could be said for the recent space voyages by billionaires Richard Branson of Virgin and Jeff Bezos of Amazon, whose combined net worth of $200 billion is more than the combined budgets of the Departments of Education, Labor, Energy, and Housing and Urban Development. Unlike humankind's first space voyages, which were publicly funded and led by the government, these recent space voyages are led by the world's richest men. When Bezos was asked in a 2018 interview how he could possibly spend so much money, he said the only way he could think to spend as much of his, as he called it, winnings as possible was through space travel. Recently, Bezos has claimed that his space investments are also necessary for humanity's future, when humans will have to seek energy resources beyond Earth. Critics argue that humanity has needs here and now, not off Earth in an imagined future. For instance, humanity faces climate disaster years and decades, not centuries from now. Instead of privately funding space voyages, Critics say billionaires like Bezos could better spend their money on public services. As if in attempt to head off this criticism, Bezos ended this week's space travel event with a surprise $200 million donation to two individuals, one a world-renowned chef, the other a CNN commentator. He said the two could spend the money how they see fit with, quote, no strings attached. But again, critics say this misses the point. Private philanthropy is not the same as fully funded public services that meet everyone's basic material needs. And, by the way, that $200 million donation could be just another tax write-off for Bezos. For Reclaiming the Narrative, I'm Jason Taylor, and this was the Inequality Index from WXIR's Evidence of Design radio show. We're going to take a short break. When we come back... Rochester's Broadway comes back to life in the upcoming performance of Monologues on Clarissa Street. And we'll hear from the founder of Rock the Peace about what to expect from this year's festival. Stay with us. You're listening 
to Reclaiming the Narrative Community-Powered Local News, produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast on WAYO 104.3. I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. And I'm Darian Lehman. We're going to tear up your neighborhood, but it won't hurt a bit. That's one of the things residents of the Clarissa Street neighborhood remember hearing from developers before everything changed. And it's one of the haunting lines from Monologues on Clarissa Street, which will be rebroadcast this weekend as part of the Rochester Bronze Collective's ongoing theater fest. Last year, I got a chance to speak with the Monologues director, Ruben Tapp, about the history of that once vibrant African-American neighborhood and the lessons it holds for Rochester's gentrifying communities today. I began by asking him to paint a picture of Clarissa Street in its heyday. They called it Rochester's Broadway. But it, was, it was very rich in arts and music and also in, in faith. On Friday, Saturday night, things would just come alive. The, the, the jazz and even there were different musicians that would come in and, and they would say, hey, you, you need to go to the Fifth Eye when you came to Rochester. Stevie Wonder... When he came to town, he came to the Fifth Eye Room and, and played all the different in- instruments. And then you had the, the eateries, like LaRue's Restaurant and Smitty's Birdland. And you had a lot of different things going, uh, pool halls. And so it was a, a strong microcosm of the African-American community during that time. Uh, but through planning, zoning, as often happens with African-American communities, oftentimes it's not valued in the same way, and so there's rerouting and there's ways that ends up being broken up. And so that's kind of what, what happened with Clarissa Street. And so the monologue tells the story of people, a lot of the people who came from the South coming up north to find work, and, and then also the residents that were here when they were received from, from those, and just kind of that, that intermingling and then the, the nightlife and the faith of the different uh, uh, Mount Olivet as well as AME Zion. There's pieces specifically a, a, about those in the piece. So this isn't the first time that Monologues on Clarissa Street is being performed. You know, what are the challenges to making this history come to life on stage? And how have you tried to put your own stamp on this production? So, yes, this is not the first time. I was a part of the reading before, but I didn't direct it prior to. Uh, Gary DeWitt Marshall had directed it prior to to me, but we had done the reading prior to. One of the problems early on was trying to find footage of the area, pictures and things of that sort, especially on the outside of the Pithod, was increasingly hard. Now, there is a Clarissa Street reunion uh, organization, and they've been very helpful in allowing me to take a look at some of the pictures that they had and some of the, 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 the footage that they had. But even even there, so the, the pit side, the outside, the exterior, you could only get catch a, a corner of it because it was destroyed later on. So we don't, we don't have that uh, marker that you would normally have. So who do you hope comes to see this performance? And what do you think is the importance of knowing about this history today? In terms of knowing about the history today, I, as, as well as some of the target audiences, there are those who are, who are nostalgic and want to relive kind of those, those moments. The, the next part would be for those who wonder why certain communities are a certain way, who are just kind of curious, just kind of interested. I've always heard about Clarissa Street. I've always heard about this, but I really don't know what it's about. 
I may not have uh, understood what what could happen with zoning, why why zoning is important, and why if you're not aware of, of things that are going on, then it can overtake you, especially in politics. So definitely those who were in government so that they could get a – and those who are looking at going – activists who are looking at going into government. And so would you say that some of the lessons of this history are still pretty relevant today, uh, especially you know when we talk about gentrification and development without displacement in the 19th Ward, the Beechwood neighborhood, the Plex neighborhood? Would you say that some of these themes uh, have come back around? Yes, I, I, I really would. As long as the people who live in those neighborhoods are given a voice to improve their neighborhood, it goes well. When people outside of a neighborhood are given money to come in, then people are gentrified or, or moved out or the whole community changes. Like there's, there's a line in there that says, we're going to tear up your community, but it won't hurt a bit. And so that was the line that, that they you know, kind of kind of used. It's like, oh, it'll be okay. You, you saw a lot of that with uh, Katrina with, when they went back in to rebuild. And it was a whole group of people that were moved out and a whole group of people who were moved in. And it's, it's not anything that's, that's new. It's similar to I grew up in St. Louis. And so <laughs> there was a group who were moved into the city and a group that moved out as a result of the group moving into the city. And then at some point, uh, those people moved out of the city. And then there was uh, enclaves that, that were built up to keep certain people out again. So you just kind of see it, see how it worked back then, and you can relate to it how it works now. And of course, what's remarkable about the history of the Clarissa Street neighborhood is that people resist uh, by remembering mm-hmm. um, and re- and coming back for the reunion year after year and through performances like monologues on Clarissa Street. Ruben Tapp is the director of Monologues on Clarissa Street. Ruben, thanks for your time. All right. Thank you. The rebroadcast of Monologues on Clarissa Street takes place Friday and Saturday at 7.30 p.m. You can tune in on the Rochester Bronze Collective's Facebook page or YouTube channel. The 11th annual Rock the Peace Festival is happening this weekend. This festival aims to provide comfort and healing to community members who have lost loved ones to violence. Reporter Abby Clark spoke with the founder of Rock the Peace to learn more about the organization and its long-standing community event. Joining me on the phone today is Serena Cotton. Serena is the founder of Rock the Peace, Inc., who will be holding their 11th annual Rock the Peace Fest Saturday, July 24th. Can you tell me more about Rock the Peace, Inc.? I started Rock the Peace uh, back in 2008. Um, 2007, I lost my 16-year-old son, Christopher Jones, to a homicide. Um, And for his birthday, he always made a big deal. So that following, it was November of 2007. So that following July, his birthday, I wanted to do something big. So I thought about doing a festival and it was called uh, Peace for Chris Fest and Other Victims of Violence. Um, I later changed the name because you don't notice things until it happened to you. So after it happened, I noticed all the violence. I'm so sorry for your loss. I think it's powerful that through this loss, you've created an organization to provide a healing space for those also affected by violence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Of course. Uh, what are some of the resources available through your organization? Uh, so th- within uh, Rock the Peace, we have two groups. We have one called Why My Baby. It's for parents, grandparents who lost children to violence by death or prison. And uh, we meet via Zoom or we do pop-up sit-ins at different locations. Um, it's, it's a group uh, for us to, to get together because no one understands what you're going through, but someone that's actually going through the same thing. And the same with our youth group call you for peace is for the youth who lost parents or siblings or close loved ones to violence by death or prison um and it's a group that you know what we notice is uh, what i notice with my own children i have four boys and losing the youngest when when there's a loss the focus is more on the parent and we forget about that their siblings that are closer to the sibling than the parent is because they spend more time with that sibling, but they, you know, no one noticed that they're going through even more pain that they just lost their best friend. Um, so that is basically, you know, it's a mentoring group for uh, youth five and older. Mm-hmm. And then annually you run the festival, which brings members of the community out. Um, Can you describe what the festival's like? Like what kinds of activities the families can take part in at the festival? Like I say, it started as a birthday party because his birthday is actually this Friday. He would have been turning 30. Um, So it's always like the third or fourth week, um, Saturday of uh, July. And what it entails is uh, free food you know, hamburgers, hot dogs, stuff like that. Uh, We have a a children's corner with bounce houses and um, we always at least have two or three and different activities for the children in in there. We have vendors, we have a prayer tent uh, where someone need prayer could go in there and there's someone to pray for them. And then we have the big stage where we have different speakers, um, talent, we have music, live bands, um, dancers, uh, and uh, and then we have informational tables with different community organizations. And every year is different, you know, with COVID, some stuff that we would normally do. Um, we like we had horses before, we had um, clothing giveaways before, and just just different things yeah. like that and it's free to the entire community so much comfort in different ways yeah it's basically to um like the victims of violence like every day is a struggle you know every day that you get up you go to bed you deal with stuff during the day every moment is a struggle so it's one day where we all could get together and just love on each other and and just just have fun, you know? Absolutely. That's extremely important. Is there anything else you'd like to say as far as like the biggest takeaway from doing this festival? I mean, coming from your own story, your son's birthday party to being able to give back to everybody. What's your biggest takeaway all these years? It's been a long time. I know, right? The biggest thing is, is seeing everyone together. And uh, we never had security or anything. I'm knock on wood. Um, and we never, ever had an issue ever. 
And um, I just pray that it continue to be that way because when you come, the atmosphere is a fun family love, you know, um, and, and, and we just try to keep it that way. You know, we have a lot of gospel, um, a lot of uh, ministers, a lot of prayer, because that's the most important thing is prayer. You know, everyone don't pray and it's okay. But uh, just just the happiness that the day entails. Absolutely. And of course, after not doing it last year, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of love this year. Yeah. And we, we you know, we have we have this, we have September is the National Day of Remembrance of Murder Victims, September 25th. So we do the Rochester one each year. And then in um, December, we for our Youth for Peace, we have a, a youth extravaganza for the holiday. Thank you so much, Serena, for doing so much for the community and for coming on to Reclaiming the Narrative today and sharing it with our listeners. Thank you for having me. Rock the Peace Fest is happening Saturday, July 24th from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Jones Square. For more information, you can visit www.rockthepeace.org. For Reclaiming the Narrative, I'm Abby Clark. And that does it for our show. Our reporters this week were Laura Smith and Jason Taylor. Abby Clark is our arts and culture reporter. I'm Darian Lehman. And I'm Vanessa Ryland Buntley. If you'd like to get involved and join our volunteer news team, you can send us a message at wxirnews at gmail.com. We want to thank you for supporting community-powered local news produced for WXIR 100.9 FM and rebroadcast by our friends at WAYO 104.3. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourselves. And each other. Have a great weekend. 